Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and on this installment of Conversations with the Co-op, we have Dr. Carl Kreider, who is the CEO of Grid Plus and a core contributor to the Phonon DAO. We also think that Justin LaRue will be joining us shortly as well. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Carl. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Fun start to the new year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The price action is uh, a great start to the new year. Absolutely. <laughs> but let's just start off with some introductions. So why don't you tell us, Dr. Carl, just a little bit about your background and how you got into crypto. So I got into crypto back in 2012. I actually heard about it on NPR, or as I like to say, the Nipper, back in 2011. <laughs> they did a story on people buying drugs. And I obviously got interested just from the monetary aspect of it. At the time, though, I wanted to buy some, and the only way I could buy it was some convoluted process of getting a like a phone card, cash, then converting that to an OK Pay card, somehow redeeming that on Mount Gox for like a coupon to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> so uh, I I waited till 2012 to do it, and I ended up buying my first Bitcoins from Charlie Shrem's company i think it was um I'm trying to remember the name of it actually it wasn't you know bitpay still around but but anyway it was charlie shrem's old um company and you had to go use cash at like a uh, walgreens and um you know use a western union to get your to get your bitcoin so that was like my first bitcoin so my background though is i'm an engineer by training and I figured this out actually in 2012. I just started my doctorate at University of Texas in engineering. Um, so I was very interested and kind of lurked in the space, but there wasn't really much you could do uh, at that time if you didn't have uh, <laughs> secondary means to support yourself. So I did my degree, graduated, and then I went to work for Consensus. And I worked for Consensus for a year, then formed the spin-out Grid Plus, and I've been working on Grid Plus ever since. My focus at Grid Plus has always been trying to make crypto easier for people to self-custodian and use. So I've always been working on sort of like a hardware wallet set of solutions, which is really the lattice one at this point, as well as uh, safeguards. Yeah, so that's that's a little bit about my background. One of the things that happened, though, is when we were working on the safeguards, and safeguards for people that don't know, are effectively using a smart card to create a pin-protected seed phrase. So if you think about the logistics of actually storing a seed phrase securely in a somewhat adversarial environment, I mean, right now, I think most people find it pretty easy because it's basically just being stored in a, an obscure way. But <laughs> as crypto becomes more and more ubiquitous, I think seed phrases are going to become more and more targeted, which is to make storing them harder. 
certainly in plain text on paper. So the cool part about the safe cards is it's effectively like a plain text seat, except it's protected by a pin. So um, you can just leave it on your desk and not worry about it. We actually sell safe cards that have 10 ETH on them. So if anyone thinks they can break the security around a safe card, they can go to gridplus.io and buy safe cards with 10 ETH on them and see if they can get the 10 ETH off. But so those are safe cards. So one of the things that I kind of figured out with safe cards, though, is they had some unique properties uh, with them, uh, specifically regarding something called a physically unclonable function. And the concept of a physically unclonable function is that that safe card can never be copied, right? And that's one sort of key piece that goes into crypto that we talk about as, you know, not being able to do a double spend. So I realized that not being able to do a double spend and not being able to copy a physically unique thing were an interrelated concept. And that triggered me to start thinking about how that could be used. And that's how uh, Phonon was born. Yeah, okay. And that's interesting. I, I didn't realize you went to the University of Texas. Are you a native Texan as well? So I've been in Texas since 08. Yeah, I, I moved down here for my first job after college. Okay. I'm assuming the Austin area, because that seems to be where a lot of Web3 people are in Texas. Yeah, so I actually started out in San Antonio, and then I moved up for my degree in 12, my graduate degree in 2012, and then I've been here ever since. Well, I'm in the Dallas area, actually, and I think Jay, I think uh, DeLong, from, or formerly from Sushi, is out there in San Antonio as well. But no, that's besides the point. So... Yeah. So you said that I feel like a lot of times with the kind of crypto OGs like yourself that got started, you know, in 2012, it's either they got started off, you know, either being a Bitcoin core dev, working at Coinbase or going the consensus route. And you went the consensus route and you said that Grid Plus kind of spun out of consensus. So maybe just provide a little more color on that background, can you give us like a little background on consensus and how did Grid Plus come to be as, you know, forming and then spinning out of consensus? How, how does that program work? We were actually the first company to spin out of consensus. So it was slightly a novel thing, obviously, when we did it. But effectively, three of us, you know, had an idea I thought it, you know, could be a, a good opportunity, you know, and then we just talked to Joe and worked out a way to spin out the organization. Consensus is, is always interesting because they've always referred to themselves as a mesh, not a company. And they've they've evolved significantly since 2017. So there's actually a more distinct formalization now. So they actually have like consensus software, which is more of like a separate corporate entity from consensus mesh, which is more like a, an incubator type entity now. So those things weren't distinct and didn't exist back in 17, but, but now they do. So the, the process that, you know, a company would go through is they would pitch an idea to the mesh, right, and potentially be brought into the mesh. And that would act as like an incubator with some degree of funding and support around it to get them started. So 
again, I'm not super familiar with how it works now, but that's that's my understanding. Yeah, and you know, you being the CEO of Grid Plus, I don't know, just like what's it like being a hardware focused company in the crypto space, which I feel like at least of recently crypto is has been a lot more software heavy i guess i don't know i just kind of want to get your take on that in general and then we'll kind of move into phonon well uh, fundamentally i think that crypto and a lot of the ux problems around crypto can only be solved by hardware and i really don't see a way that software can solve all these problems so like is critical to creating and maintaining decentralized systems, right? If everyone just keeps their crypto on Coinbase, we don't actually have a like a decentralized money system. We've potentially decentralized or replaced the Federal Reserve and monetary policy, but you're just replacing JP Morgan with Coinbase. And you're going to see the same rent-seeking behavior over time by definition, right? So to kind of keep things as free peer-to-peer money, you have to enable people to keep assets themselves. And that's that's really the focus, you know, of Grid Plus. And in terms of being a hardware manufacturer in the space and just hardware in generally, it's much harder than software. So there's a lot of things and dependencies that we can't directly control. And those have been exacerbated with COVID. Right. So our lead times get higher, our shipping rates go up. So it's it's a lot more difficult to execute successfully than a software strictly play. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, with Coinbase being the custodian for a lot of retail digital assets and I guess you know, I guess there is security there with Coinbase being a custodian, right? And then you have uh protocols or not protocols, but you know, hot wallets like Coinbase Wallet and MetaMask and there's, I guess, just a, a lack of security. And I think security is something that we want to we wanna touch on as well in this conversation. So do you have a hot wallet personally? Like what's your view on those? Or are you 100% hardware all the time? I still have like hot wallets, but they're really just like legacy and there's not enough in the wallets that, the only reason I still have any assets not on a hardware wallet is because I'm I've been too busy to to deal with it and it's not the highest priority <laughs> in my life. But any of my meaningful assets that I have that aren't just like some random coin that I bought way back when, everything of meaningful value is on a hardware wallet. And I it's on a on a lattice. And every day that I use crypto and every transaction that I do, I use a lattice for. I probably uh, could have guessed that your assets were on a lattice. Yeah, I mean, the problem is once you get safe cards, they're like crack because they're just so much better than seed phrases and they're so much easier to use and they're so much easier to replicate and back up and store that like once you've done it once, you're going to keep doing it, right? And the other thing that's great about it too is it's super easy to keep like segregated funds. So you can have money for your company on a set of safeguards on a separate seed and then you can have some personal crypto over here and then you can have crypto for your family over there and those are all separate sets of cards and seed phrases 
like once once you start using safe cards <laughs> they're they're pretty addicting and you're gonna end up with like 20 or 30 of them so i mean the, the analog there is right like people would have a bunch of ledgers and they would have a bunch of seed phrases written down somewhere but the cool part is like you just have these safe cards again much easier to store much easier to replicate backup, much easier to use, right? So like when I want to use a safe card, I just plug it in my lattice and I pin in and like I'm hot, right? I'm ready to go. Whereas if I had a seed phrase and you here it's like 20 to restore a seed phrase on the ledger, right? So like that's not, you know, an easy topology to use. So they're just super convenient and super fast if you're managing any sets of monies of any amount. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, but- you mentioned Ledger, and so, yeah, when I think of hardware wallets in the crypto space, you know, I think yeah, the Grid Plus Lattice, Trezor, and then the Ledger are probably the, the top three that I think of. How do, you, how do you view your competition and, like, how do you differentiate yourself between those other two competitors? And where do you see the opportunity for Grid Plus in the future to kind of gain some more market share? just in your opinion, as the CEO? For us right now, our biggest issue with gaining market share is just production. We're just working on getting more throughput and productive capacity. That's that's really like our bottleneck. You know, I think within the sort of high-end whale community, the funds and any, you know, very native web three people right a lot of them know about the lattice and a lot of them use it already you know if you're talking about differentiation i mean this is like the difference between a horse-drawn wagon and a you know and a car right there there really isn't any comparison between like a little usb dongle and a lattice right a lattice is sort of an always-on sort of web three terminal like a bloomberg terminal would be to the stock exchange right compared to like a little security usb dongle that you have so like i don't think they're comparable in in use i don't think they're comparable in scope i don't think they're comparable in security right like one of the big issues with web3 is that treasure and ledger weren't really designed and haven't really changed for web3 so one of the problems that you face is when you interact with a contract you need to verify what you sign Right. There's two ways that you can lose money in crypto. One is somebody gets your, your seed phrase or your private keys and they just take all your money. That's why you have a hardware wallet. But the thing that the hardware wallet also has to do for you is allow you to verify what you're signing on the hardware. Wallet, right. So when you look at Web3, even like a simple Uniswap transaction, it's going to be several hundred bytes of data that you're going to have to verify. And Ledger doesn't have a way to present that because of the small screen, nor can they present that in any sort of marked up or human readable form. So like on the Lattice, if you do a Uniswap transaction, you can load an ABI pack and it parses out that data payload into a human readable form. And then you can also use what we call address tags to tag the different addresses um, that are used, you know, either a contract address or an asset address. So if I do Uniswap, I can tag the contract router as Uniswap v3. I can tag my USDC as USDC, and I could tag you know wrapped Ether as WEF. And then so when I go to confirm it, 
it just says, oh, you're doing a Uniswap exact output for USDC from WEF in these amounts. And it's super easy to read and confirm, right? So that is essential to maintaining security when you're interacting with uh, Web3 contracts. And we've seen two hacks last year showing that the hackers are, are moving into the space of hacking people that have hardware wallets that are forcing people to blind sign, right? One hack was Hugh Carp uh, earlier in the year. And then the second hack more recently was Badger Dow, And that was for quite a bit of money. So as people interact with Web3 more and there's more and more value against it, they have to realize that they can't blind sign and they have to have a wallet that allows them to confirm what they're signing. Yeah, the blind signing aspect of the you know, ledger MetaMask connection has always been kind of the, has made me a little apprehensive as well. So I, I definitely get where you're coming from there. And yeah, the Badger hack, that was, yeah, that that was a pretty bad one. And, you know, we, we've got Badger in our DeFi Pulse Index as well. So we are obviously staying pretty close to that situation. But yeah, it, it's unfortunate. And it's just important, especially with new people in the space, to stress that security because it's, this is a very new and nascent space and there's a lot changing on a day and it's just different, right? This isn't like someone robbing a bank and, and your funds are secure there. It's, it's, it's very different. It's self-sovereign and it, and it adds a little more responsibility to the users as well. I think that's important to stress, but let's kind of get into phone on Dow. Well, well, I, I oh, yeah, guess go ahead. Before, before we hop there, I just, I just want to say, right. So like, a ledger is great if you're doing a simple EOA transfer, right, from one account to another. Right. But the second you're blind signing and you're not confirming what you're signing, the only thing that is saving you is the fact that the majority of hackers aren't targeting that yet. But they clearly are starting to. So at that point, relative to your safe, when you're making a signature, its security is like, it's kabuki theater, right? It's the TSA. It's a it's a security talisman that you like hang around your neck to make you feel good about what you're doing, but it's not actually providing anything for you the second you blind sign. Right. So what would you say, you know, when you're interacting with a smart contract, like what are the best practices to go through? Yeah, I mean, the reason that they do blind signing is because it's, it's close to impossible to get confirmations done on a ledger because your data payloads are, you know, in hex code, right? So the first thing that you have to do is you have to take that hex code and you have to use an ABI or you have to support EIP 712 to be able to represent that hex code in a meaningful way that's human readable, right? All it is is just a bytes to begin with. So if you're like on a ledger and you're just seeing like a string of bytes go across, you would have to like write down the string of bytes. You'd then have to like go manually look up the ABI. You'd have to figure out how to parse that set of hex strings. So you then would end up doing some conversions and some Indian flips, looking at the different fields and then confirming them against what you think they are, right? But with a lattice, if you go through that process, like I said, of you load the ABI back and you load up address tags, then you're simply confirming, what am I doing? A Uniswap you know, uh, swap for exact for this asset, for that asset, to this destination wallet, and this amount, right? So then that's something that anybody can really confirm, but but you need to get away from just like signing hex blobs to actually confirming what those hex blobs are. And that's really 
you know, one of the things that the lattice brings to bear. So, yeah. And I think we can start to transition to phonon Dow in that sense. You know, I, I've heard about phonon Dow a couple times, one on the Into the Ether podcast with, you know, Eric Connor and Sasano. And I've heard Sasano talk about it on the Daily Gway quite a bit too. And that's a way to allow for peer-to-peer transfers of digital assets off-chain. So I just kind of want to kind of get your sense. Um, what was the idea behind this? Like, what's the history of PhoneOnDAO? And why do you feel like uh, an innovation like this is important to the space? So let me, let me answer the second question first. The reason that I think something like Phonon is important is because I am not a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm not an Ethereum maximalist, but I am a crypto maximalist. So I am convinced that cryptocurrency or crypto-like systems will be our money in the future, really, period. What we have to do is we have to build systems that allow everybody to have access to crypto and be able to use crypto for all things. And ideally, we want to do that in a way in which it remains sort of decentralized and uncontrolled. Layer one solutions, right? We all know about the gas fees and whatnot. And from a technical standpoint, layer one solutions can scale, but they're going to run into a network constrained upper limit at a point that sort of balances sharding of state and throughput. So sort of reasonable estimations of what that limit might be for like a layer one are going to be maybe 7,000 TPS. So so if you can get to say 7,000 TPS, that's great. And that does a lot, but that still doesn't create a system that can replace money as we know it today. So we're going to need another set of systems to do that. And Phonon is super interesting uh, because it allows for off-chain transfers of assets between phonon cards, it scales linearly with the number of participants. So if there were 7.9 billion phonon cards in the world, you could do 7.9 billion transactions per second. And I think we're going to need something like that to make up the gap between 7,000 transactions per second on layer one to everybody in the world using crypto. So that's the that's the second answer of why do we need something like that? The first answer of what the history was is Phonon was an idea that I had. Uh, I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier based off of understanding some of the characteristics of the safeguards when we were working on those, specifically the fact that you wouldn't be able to replicate the safeguards. So I knew that that could help basically create a system where you could guarantee the enforcement of double spends without having to have a centralized ledger or consensus mechanism. And so that was kind of the genesis of the idea of Phonon. And I'll just give the sort of the TLDR of Phonon here now that we're, we're talking about it. So Phonon is a hardware-enforced, off-chain, layer zero, scaling solution for any crypto asset. So it effectively lets people uh, deposit something into 
a phonon compatible uh, chip. So that could be a smart card, that could be a SIM card, that could be an eSIM, that could be interfaced with a computer via a HID reader, that could be interfaced with a smartphone with an NFC connection, that could be a card at a point of sale terminal with an NFC connection. That could be a smartphone that has a natively embedded eSIM that's been flashed with the phone on applet. But using any one of those interfaces, they'll be able to take something from a chain. They'll be able to trade it privately off-chain at no fees an infinite number of times between the members, any of the other phone on cards. And then they'll subsequently be able to redeem it back to chain at a future point if they so desire. So that's kind of what Phonon does. Yeah, I'm going to try to ask, you know, I feel like this is such a very novel idea. Maybe not a novel idea. I think people have had this idea, but you and Phonon DAO and Grid Plus are actually implementing this idea. Um, well, actually, first, I, I'll ask, you know, what is the relationship between Grid Plus and Phonon DAO? I think that could give us uh, a little bit of background uh, as well. The idea here is we came up with this idea at Grid Plus, and we were originally looking at it to solve a problem that we were trying to solve, which was how do you do kind of streaming payments or microtransactions? This is potentially very interesting for a lot of different things, not just microtransactions. I think, you know, Phonon is applicable to creating interoperable swaps between any blockchain. I think it's useful for sort of in-person peer-to-peer payments using smartphones that don't even require network connectivity. And I also think it's good for microtransactions. You know, spans a large amount of potential uh, applications and spaces. So Grid Plus developed phone on applet. We've developed a CLI. We've developed uh, sort of like a backend we call a Ripple. Uh, we've developed a mock. So and we've released that. And the idea is we've built something that we think is becoming close to akin to a, like a native cryptographic sort of protocol. Right, it transcends blockchains, it transcends any asset type, it transcends any single protocol. So in and of itself, you think of it as a protocol, right? So Grid Plus has developed the basic framework, and the DAO is formed to help build additional services and applications on top of that framework. So, you know, Grid Plus is still intimately involved in developing tooling and you know helping the DAO, you know, get established and hopefully the first few applications developed, but it's much more of a protocol. I mean, you can think of it as a layer one, but it's a layer zero in that you need a a disinterest, like not a singular corporate entity sort of pushing the use and development and adoption of that protocol. And that's really uh, the purpose of the phone on DAO. Just make sure I understand this. Phonon DAO's purpose is to build applications on top of the Phonon protocol. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, to build applications and to also yeah build value-added services and to help facilitate other people to build applications. That's correct. Yeah, and you, you're describing the Phonon protocol as a layer zero. And I'm trying to think of other protocols that 
market themselves as such. Uh, Polkadot is one that I can think of who markets themselves as a layer zero. Can you kind of go into like the differences? Because it, it feels like two very different definitions of layer zero there. Yeah, so I would say I'm not intimately familiar with all specific implementations of people marketing themselves as layer zeros. The ones that I have looked at, I would argue that they're not actually layer zeros. The reason we're calling it a layer zero is because the phonon protocol does not have dependencies upon the blockchain protocol. So the only thing a phonon protocol has to support to support a blockchain is the same signing curve. There's effectively three signing curves that exist, K, R, and Edwards. And if you support those three signing curves, you support every blockchain. So the topology of the stack, if you think about what is dependent on what, phonon would be below, not above the layer ones. Other things that are playing themselves as layer zeros have some protocol-specific connectors that have to be built on top of the protocol-specific you know, constructs that exist in the layer ones to connect them together. So they're marketing themselves as a layer zero, but if you drew a technical stack, they're clearly a layer two. Whereas Phonon is literally a layer zero because the only thing that we really understand is key pairs. And that's it. Okay. And yeah, that makes sense. And maybe it just comes to, you know, this is such a new space. There needs to be some sort of redefinition of these terms, right? Because I can see how both of these could be considered a layer zero in some sense. Maybe a better term for something would be like a sub, just call it sub layer one, because maybe not necessarily layer zero and maybe not a layer two, but something in between. But I don't know. That's just me kind of rambling there. Just something I think about. But yeah, thanks. That's helpful. Right. I mean, traditionally, when you look at the tech stacks and you say, like, what's on top of what is done based off what has a dependency on what. Right. So our dependency is really like cryptography. It's not anything specific to Ethereum or Bitcoin or Solana. We don't even understand as the base protocol. The So there's different parts. Right. And I kind of mentioned them earlier. But when I say the protocol, I'm effectively just referring to the phone on applet. So the Phonon protocol and the Phonon applet has no understanding of any blockchain. Like it doesn't know what Ethereum is. It doesn't know what Bitcoin is. It doesn't know what a SAT is. It doesn't know what a GUI is. It doesn't know anything. It doesn't like, and it can't, right? Because it's a highly constrained environment that has no guarantees on having good information about the world. Like it can't make a decision about what a Bitcoin is versus what an Ether is versus what etc is right like all of that is is like a subjective thing that you'd have to have a node and you'd have to be connected to the internet and understand what generalized social consensus is to like come up with an idea right the cards themselves don't understand any of that all they understand is that they have a key pair and they can atomically swap those key pairs that's that's like all the cards understand but okay. that's all they need to understand <laughs> Right. So that's that's what's going on under the hood of these phonon cards, right? Is just an exchanging of private keys. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. So the process for creating a phonon is you would tell your phonon client that you want your card to create a new phonon. It would pop out a, or a public key. Uh, the client would turn that public key into an address for what asset you want to send money to. So, right, that public key can be turned into a Bitcoin address or an Ether address or a Solana address, doesn't matter. You then send money or an asset to that. So it could be Ether, it could be, you know, USDC, it could be an NFT, doesn't matter, to that address. You then load the metadata describing what that asset is. So a phonon is fundamentally metadata and a key pair. And then the phonon card will enforce the uniqueness of the existence of that private key and the atomic swap of that private key between other people in the network. You know, and that process can happen an infinite number of times. So I could send you some money, you could send Justin some money, Justin could send it to Alex, and then Alex could then withdraw it. When you withdraw a phonon, you're exporting the key pair, which makes it no longer exchangeable in the network, but now it becomes visible and usable back on a layer one. Okay, and is there a point in time where, I guess, these transactions, these exchanging of uh, private keys, I guess, batch back to the layer one, or... I guess they so, don't, I guess they don't have to. Okay, yeah. Correct. I'll, I'll let you, I'll correct. let you explain. So they don't have to, right? So like if you export a private key and that private key represents a Bitcoin, that effectively is just another entry in a UTXO wallet, right? So you could just add that private key to your to your wallet and the wallet would just do its normal thing and and that's the end of it. In Ethereum and how we use Ethereum with accounts, there may be an argument not that you need to re-aggregate that key in some way to make it usable, but to make it convenient to use, you may then aggregate it into one of your used accounts, right? But there's no implicit requirement to do a redeem on chain because once you have the private key in your possession, you have the use of that asset on chain and you doing a transaction is just making it more convenient for you to hold that asset. You see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. So in an account model, you probably would want to like re-aggregate it into your account. So there would be a, an on-chain sort of redemption. That's right, because Ethereum has the account model, and then Bitcoin has the UTXO model for managing the ledger, right? Yeah. Right. Right. And so, yeah, just kind of thinking through like a real world example and i I can see i mean obviously there's there's so many benefits to this but you know let's say me and my friend grab dinner he pays for it and i decide yeah i'll just send you some sats with my phone on card is it that simple or you know how do these phone on cards communicate and is it can i do just any arbitrary number of my choosing or if you're exchanging private keys, do these private keys have to be preloaded with specific amounts or, or how does that work? So in the alpha version of Phonon, each Phonon is representative of an on-chain asset. There are potentially ways that we can extend this to make them divisible off-chain, but that 
hasn't yet been added. So if you were going to say pay in the alpha format, everything that is a phonon should be thought of as a UTXO. And it's similar to UTXO treatment on, on Bitcoin. So if you know you wanted to pay your friend 35 bucks because he picked up dinner and you wanted to pay for your hat, what you would likely do is send him four phonons, right? Maybe you would have three phonons worth $10 and one worth $5. So you would just pull your wallet up. The wallet can do sort of the abstractions that Bitcoin wallets do. So you don't need to go and like specifically pick your phonons. You would just say, I want to send this guy 35 bucks and the wallet would figure out how to make that happen in the most efficient way. Right? Right. Yes, I can see that. So ideally what it would look like, you know, so if you have a smartphone that's been built within the last three years, that's one of the nicer ones, like a Pixel 3 or greater, an iPhone 10 or greater, or like a Samsung 20 or greater we think we can actually deploy phone on as an app store download to your phone and provision the applet to the micro sim as part of that or the the eSIM as part of the process so what it would look like from a user standpoint is you would just have an app on your phone he would request you know 35 usdc from you that would generate a qr code you would scan it with your app and then confirm and send it. Wow. So I feel like, you know, there's just a lot of basic questions that are coming up because this is, you know, it feels like such a novel implementation of this idea. And I think two of the things I'm thinking of, one of them you touched on a little bit, but I'm thinking of counterparty risk, like just a way of knowing that the sender of the phonons didn't keep a copy of the private key somehow to steal the assets back. And then I guess the, like a double spend problem, which you said you, you've solved, but you know, so these cards only transact with, I guess, other grid plus cards or other uh, phonon cards. Which... So, so there's two things that have to happen to make sure the whole system works. The cards need to be running phonon code. And the cards need to have the property of being unclonable. And if they have those two properties, you can guarantee that, you know, the person can't retain a private key and that the keys can't exist in new places and that the assets on the cards can't be duplicated, right? So like, as long as those two things are met, sort of all of the guarantees can be met. Somebody has to attest to those two guarantees. Initially, that could be, say, Grid Plus. So we manufacture the cards. So we're like, okay, these are NXP cards. They have these physically unclonable functions. We've confirmed that, you know, from the manufacturer um, and also through the security chain that happens with the manufacturer. And then we're going to put the phone on code onto it. And then we're going to issue a certificate. And that certificate is effectively attesting to those two properties, right? That it has a puff and it's running phone on code. Now, when I go and I want to receive a phonon from another card, I'm only going to receive phonons from certificates, which I trust. So initially, in the alpha version of this, it would just be grid plus. So only grid plus starts would be trusted between cards. But you could envision a scenario where uh, another manufacturer comes in 
you know, maybe that's status, maybe that's ledger, maybe that's Samsung, maybe that's Apple. And then if we say, okay, well, we can establish that we mutually trust each other in this uh, certification process, then you would freely be able to, you know, transact between a grid plus applet and a status applet and a Samsung applet using the same guarantees. It's just a different set of manufacturers is certifying that guarantee. Yeah, that makes sense. And so with the phone on DAO, there's also the phone on token now. And I think grid plus has a token as well. So I, I do kind of want to talk about, you know, what are the use cases for the phonon token? And I guess like, is there any relationship between the grid plus token and the, and the phonon token? And I don't know, just kind of what, what is the purpose of, of the token within the DAO? So the grid plus token can be converted to the phonon token. So that's one thing. The point of the token in the DAO is to create, it's a governance token, first and foremost, but it's also a token that's used to create incentives as well as revenue, generating things by providing services to the protocol layer, right? So in the very basic form of, I want to send you a phone on, and it's for dinner, so there's not like significant amount of money or significant counterparty risk here. Um, right. Your friend, when you're saying, Hey, I'm willing to pay you this $35 USDC, his client would go and it would look up that that is indeed $35 of USDC before you actually send it to him. Right. So he doesn't have to, he could just take your word for it too. Right. But he, he needs to at least believe that you're not trying to screw him or just verify that you're not trying, you're not going to screw him by doing a read to a, to a ether scan or inferior or whatnot, you know, so that's one level. However, if you do something that has significantly more money and has significantly less trusted parties, you need to start having mechanisms for making sure that transactions complete specifically swaps and that there's recourse if it, it goes bad. Right. So the issue that you have with a swap, which is one of the more interesting use cases, because with swaps, I can basically tie together um, every asset on every blockchain, meaning with just a phone on card, you could swap any asset for any other asset on any blockchain. Right. So you could think about like a simple use case making a, a DEX, but a DEX that transcends any crypto asset in existence. Right. So instead of just being Uniswap and ERC20s and, and whatnot, you know, it's it's Ether, it's Bitcoin, it's Binance, it's Solana, it's Cardano, it's everything. So that's what you can do with it. The problem, though, that you have with a swap is that we can't guarantee completion because somebody has to go first, right? Somebody will always have to send, you know, the first half of the transaction before the second half is sent. And so there's this problem that the cards themselves can't enforce the understanding of completion, either through a, like a network loss of connectivity or through someone nefariously trying to like cut off a transaction. So we can partially answer that question with a protocol through something that we call a, uh, a conditional transfer or a conditional swap, wherein prior to the first person sending money, the second person basically provides a signed agreement to what we're going to swap 
And then their car will only accept the first half of the agreement, the first part of the send, after it has sent the second half. And if that were to happen, we've made it so that you could do untrusted swaps between parties and no one would ever economically benefit Like in this process, we've got it down to what we'd call a griefing attack. Now, the problem, though, is it's still a griefing attack. So what the DAO can do is the DAO can create like a smart contract layer above it that says in this swap scenario, if this transaction doesn't complete, the first party actually has a proof that we agreed to this transaction and they initiated the first half. You could then have the cards guild effectively that swap. So if each card put like one ether up, against you know doing swaps into that smart contract these parties could swap one ether and always know that if the transaction didn't complete they could go to the smart contract and be like hey you know i have evidence that this card you know tried to or didn't complete the transaction therefore i would like to receive you know a portion of their guild you know obviously the other party would also be able to contend that and basically say oh no i completed my half of the transaction here's that receipt but that receipt would effectively provide the money to the, to the first person. The cool part about the gilding process, though, is if we say only guild our cards to one ETH, we could still trade 100 ETH. We could still swap 100 ETH worth of assets. We would just do it one ETH at a time, right? So we'd stream 100 ETH one ETH at a time. And if either one of the parties sort of breaks the agreement on any one of those transactions, we would just stop and then go and adjudicate it with a smart contract. So there's a number of secondary services that start to make sense as you you come up with more complicated applications that you'd want to build and provide to the protocol from the DAO, and those would be revenue generating services. I mean, do you foresee users using this for 100 ETH transactions, or should this be, I don't know, kind of like the cash in your back pocket? type of metaphor and it depends on the use case and it depends on the alternative right i think if everything in the world were perfect the only the use case that this would collapse into would be cash and like microtransactions however um i don't think that the world is perfect and i think there's a lot of unmet need for higher value transactions cross-chain And so I think it will get used for that. So, and everything's like a relative, a relative risk and friction trade-off, right? So like if there's, if you go and you look at CMC and you look on the top 100 assets, there's probably 40 assets up there that I can't easily get access to as somebody in the US. Those assets I'd like to get access to. So Phonon would actually facilitate liquidity against any pair with no gatekeepers so i would be able to obtain access to those pairs regardless if i can get access to those on a centralized exchange or not so people would use it for 100 ETH transactions because the other option is like going to hotbit.io and setting up a non-kyc or like account with a fake name using a vpn and, and putting 100 ETH into that which which is not a very good option yeah i can yeah and i've got probably a hundred more questions that I could ask you on this, but I've got to get to a a few of just like more of the macro related questions here before we run up on time. I think the first one I want to ask here is just building on the phonon network, 
right? I mean, there's a DAO who is charged with, I guess, building applications and services on top of the Phonon network. I'm just curious, you know, what would you recommend or what would you like to see the DAO, I guess, kind of target first or spearhead first in terms of applications to add on top of the protocol? There's a plethora of applications. If I were going to say which is the easiest in terms of a distribution model that has the sort of smallest barrier to getting critical mass to kind of work, I would argue that it would be something like facilitating cross-chain swaps, so like a DEX. And the reason for that is, right, if we just deploy phonon making capabilities to the existing lattice user base that would be sufficient to create enough sort of liquidity and quite a few pairs and then anyone else that just wants to like come in and run a take just has to you know either download the phone applet or get a card and hook up to the computer whatever it is and they can easily start using that system so i think that's the lowest barrier of adoption to getting you know things going but obviously there's a lot of more applications like um p2p cash i mean really phonon is most akin to cash like in every way so when you said it's like cash in your back pocket the physical properties of phonon and how it's used and how it's traded and everything is is most akin to having literal bills so you know i think that is killer use case but to make that work you have to have sort of a critical mass at least in a geography to make it useful i think the other application to start out though would be in the microtransaction space so in the microtransaction space you could actually do some really cool stuff like creating incentivized tour alternatives wherein you you actually pay in a streaming sort of way for the bandwidth that you use and if you do that, you'd actually incentivize a lot more exit nodes to exist. And if a lot more exit nodes exist, you're actually going to get a much higher provable degree of security than you do currently with Tor. So, yeah. Wow, I am a big proponent of that. I think I've been tweeting for four years about why aren't these Tor nodes compensated somehow for running this network or running exit nodes. I think that's very important as well. Um, and you and I right, right. so like you could you could make because like if you know how tour works usually you get a route and you use that route for a predefined period of time right you know you could basically make a bunch of phonons that are worth like 10 cents and just the 10 cents like to your exit node as you're creating the tunnel it creates a very easy mechanism to add payment to some to a system like that well that might just be the solution that I've been looking for a while you know, I thought Zcash could be an interesting use case for that, even like Lightning Network at, at some degree. But I feel like this is this is probably the, the ultimate solution to that Tor exit node issue that I've that I've kind of seen. You know, I've got one more question for you and we're, we're running up tight on time. So if you don't feel like you have time to answer this, that's that's fine. I understand. But just seeing phone on network as, you know, a scaling solution to blockchains in general I just kind of want to get your just general take on scaling and maybe more Ethereum focused because that seems to be like the most hotly debated topic right now is Ethereum scaling. Where do you see, 
I guess the future of blockchain scaling. Is it optimistic ZK rollups? Is it you know more quasi sidechain related like Polygon? Is it a phone on layer zero? Like I don't know. Where do you see this going in the next five years? If you can predict that. So I think that there are reasonable scaling solutions that can be had to take layer ones into up to 10,000 TPS. I think that you're going to need that to keep these things decentralized. I don't think that creating L2s or rollups is going to be a, a tenable solution in the long term because of sort of how things um, silo um, and you kind of, there's still trust and there's <laughs> there's issue about tragedy of the commons and economics and paying back to layer one. There's there's a lot of issues with number of topologies in layer two. So personally, I think that people are going to figure out how to scale proof of work layer ones with EVM compatibility to 10,000 TPS. And I think that's what the future is going to be. Thanks for your insights on that. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really excited about this project and I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your insights with the index cooperative. And yeah, I just, where can people go to find out more about you and Phonon Dow? So if they want to find out about a Phonon, they can go to phonon.network. They can check out the blog there. They can check out the GitHub pages and they can start developing apps that are using Phonon. They want to find more about me, they can go to gridplus.io and then go to the blog at gridplus and they can see a lot of my, my thoughts and writings about some of these uh, questions going going back quite a ways. So yeah, hey, I really appreciate you having having me on. And yeah, I appreciate it too. To share about Conan. Yeah, I appreciate it too. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I saw a question earlier. Yes, this is being recorded and we'll probably get this out in about a week. I hope everyone has a great weekend. And thanks again, Dr. Carl, for being on here with us. Yep. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Bye.